We have got a lot of work to do, so I hope you're up to it. Um, why don't you grab a Bible? If you brought your own, grab it. If, if uh, you don't have one this morning, there's a black one in the first several rows, black hardcover. In the back, we're still, we've still got the, the white paperbacks. And I'd like you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. If you've got the black hardcover, that's page 1030. If you've got the paperback, that's 665. So Revelation chapter 4. We'll be reading from there as we begin. And when you get there, could you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Revelation chapter 4. We're going to read the whole thing. Spirit says through the Apostle John. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Holy Father, We come to you this morning aware of our unholiness. It is a a terrifying thing to step into the presence of the living God and that is what we have done this morning here in this room. Not because this room is holy, but in a way that only you can manufacture your people are holy here as we gather. And so we glorify you, Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Blessed Trinity, three in one. We can't hardly grasp what that means. And so this morning, God, would you banish distractions from our minds? Would you focus our hearts and our eyes like a laser beam on your truth? And God, would you give me the words to say as I, as I stumble and 
and, and lisp my way to trying to describe your holiness. Father, this morning we want not only to intellectually grasp what it means for you to be holy, but we want to emotionally be knocked off our feet. We want to be in our soul grateful that you are our God. And yet, Lord, there are some this morning who cannot be grateful because you are not their God. And perhaps this morning, Lord, you in your holy grace and your holy mercy would reach down and pluck up sinners who are on their way to hell where they will, they will experience your holiness in a way that we do not want to experience it. So Father, this morning, remind us of your holiness. Remind us of our unholiness and then remind us that you have made us holy, you are making us holy, and one day we will stand before you holy indeed. God bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I asked Ron a few months ago if I could do holiness in our series on the attributes of God. And at times that this week, that felt like a big mistake. <laughs> um, this is a heavy, weighty topic. I felt like I was getting sucker punched half the time while I was studying. Uh, I had to stop often and pray. I am not a holy man. Although that is a designation that is reserved sometimes for pastors. I guess in one small sense that, that may be true, and we'll get to that. But I feel my, my lack of holiness this morning, and I hope that you do as well. Here's a quote from A.W. Tozer that I couldn't help but start off the sermon with. He says, I suppose the hardest thing about God to comprehend intellectually is his infinitude. But you can talk about the infinitude of God and not feel yourself a worm. But when you talk about the holiness of God, you have not only the problem of an intellectual grasp, but also a sense of personal vileness, which is almost too much to bear. Um, A.W. Tozer was a man who, who thought and felt throughout the scriptures. He did not disengage his mind or disengage his heart. He approached the scriptures with both intact and that's why he was so blown away by God. You see, too often we have familiarized ourselves with God, again, not in an intellectual sense, but in a sense where he has become too familiar. Familiarity breeds contempt. We ought to be careful how we speak of God, how we approach God, how we talk about God to others. We ought to be careful in how we approach this subject. And I am somewhat terrified to do this. And so I ask that you would dive into this with me. Let's be terrified together. The word holy and its derivatives, so sanctified, sanctification, consecration, words that have to do with holiness occur more than 700 times throughout the Old and New Testaments. You cannot escape holiness reading through the Scriptures. One of God's titles is Holy One. And that's repeated around 45 times 
throughout the scriptures. Holy is used more often as a prefix to God's name than any other attribute. Many of the scholars that I studied this week were trying to wrestle with the fact that holiness sometimes seems to be on a whole different plane than some of the other attributes. Holiness transcends what we think of when we think of God. Sometimes we can, we can talk about God in certain ways that can help us grasp Him, but when we get to holiness, it is almost out of our reach. Almost. To understand holiness, we need to understand not what the English word holy means because we throw it around. In fact, I was convicted this week of how often I say stupid things like holy mackerel, which is absolutely a ridiculous phrase. Um, holy, whatever you put on the end of it, is, is, is not helpful, I think, to our understanding of holy. It becomes familiar, it becomes easy, it becomes, you know, normal, common. In the old sense of the word profane. But the Hebrew word kadosh means to mark off or to withdraw from common or ordinary use. It talks about being treated with special care, being separated. Another way to think about it as well is because of that separation, holiness is awe-inspiring. So you may think of the song that says, I stand in awe of you. Holy God, to whom all praises do, I stand in awe of you. And so that ought to be our response to, to holiness. One um, translator says it can be described as something that needs to be treated with caution. So, so think of something that you, need, that you handle, whether it's at your job, whether it's your china, whether it's something that someone else has given you that you don't want to break, and you handle that thing with caution. You, you are aware of your steps. You are aware of your surroundings. You become hyper-aware so that you don't break it. It is kept from profane use. It must be treated with care. The Greek word means holy, hagios, and it also means separate, apart, different. But in the New Testament, we also see the the part of the word that begins to mean more and more pure. Um, so separated in the sense of, of purity. So that something that is pure has not been defiled by anything else. So it is separate from those other things. And, and that's what we mean by holy. In the scriptures, God alone is holy. And yet, in the scriptures, many other things are holy. Holy land holy water, holy people. You can go on and on and on. There are more than 40 things that are called holy in the scriptures. What is this holiness? And how do we wrestle with the fact that God says he alone is holy and yet other things are holy and yet we are called holy? How do we deal with that? How do we understand holiness so that it separates us from an understanding of the other gods of this world that are worshipped by world religions and cults. What does it mean that God is holy? We will attempt a definition. In your notes, you'll see a definition there with two blanks. And, and this is how I tried to define God's holiness, which several authors says you can't define. So that was really helpful. But we're going to try to put some kind of understanding on this. God's holiness is both 
his transcendent separation from creation and sin and his transcendent moral purity. We use the word transcendent to, to separate his holiness, his purity from ours. So his holiness is transcendent separation. So it is not just separated on a horizontal plane, but it is separated on a vertical plane where he is above. He is other, many of the authors said, with a capital O. God is other than us. He is unique. He is different. And he is different because not only is he separate, but he's unstained by immorality, by impurity. It cannot touch him. And so he is separate and he is pure. Let's explore holiness. And there's all kinds of places we can go in the scripture. I had the toughest time this week narrowing down where we ought to go. And like it always is, we're going to go all over the place. So get your thumbs and your fingers ready because we're going we're gonna to be moving. Number one in exploring holiness, God is, as we said, separate. And I don't have a scripture passage there because I felt like it was either put 30 of them or put none. You can't read the Bible for very long without seeing a separate God. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then we see throughout the first two chapters God making something else, something other. He is separated from it. He's, he's even separated in one sense from the man and the woman that he puts his own image into. You see throughout scriptures that, that it talks about things like God alone. God is the only God. He's in heaven. We are on earth. There's a separation. In the Psalms it says our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So God is separate. He is in a place that where we are not and where we cannot approach. Other places in scripture, God says, I am not a man that I would change my mind. He's not like us in that sense. He is separate and he must stay separate from all that is common and especially from all that is sinful. So if we stopped there, we would be in huge trouble because we now see ourselves Completely separated from God, which is a word we use when we share the gospel, is it not? Separate. We're separated from God. Our sin has separated us. So God is separate. And this is all going to, to work together to show us how God is separate from us, and yet in the end how God can approach us and even dwell within us. <laughs> a paradox, it seems, if there ever was one. And number two, God is pure. God is pure. You can think of precious metal. Gold is used throughout the scriptures to talk about purity. It is, it is raised to a, an incredibly high temperature to get rid of the dross, to get rid of impurity, to make it pure gold. Turn to Habakkuk at the end of the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 1. This is Habakkuk actually complaining to God about what he is doing, questioning God's actions and how he is acting toward his people. Habakkuk 1, verse 12. Habakkuk says this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my... What's he call him? 
Holy One. We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And he uses that to say, if that's the case, what are you doing, Lord? And read the rest of Habakkuk because the Lord answers him very satisfactorily. satisfactorily. But you'll see in verse 13, you are who are of purer eyes than to see evil. And again, we have to understand this is God. We cannot explain him without some kind of nuance. Because we could take that verse to say, okay, well then God can't look at pretty much anything. <laughs> because there's evil everywhere on this earth. Cannot look at wrong. What is Habakkuk trying to say? Again, he's, he's saying he is separate. God is, is different. He's other. He's pure. The implication being, we are not He is different than us in that He is pure. Number three, and this is really important, not only for Old Testament Israel, but for the church. Because we're surrounded by other religions. Um, It used to be that America could pretend that it was separate from other religions, that it could pretend that it was a Christian nation. And we can't do that anymore. The nations have come to us. We've got Buddhist temples. We have Hindu shrines. There's a Mormon church down the street. There are religions and cults proliferating everywhere. And so we must know number three, God is not like the gods. And again, this is throughout Scripture. God is not like the gods. So constantly His people Israel... And then the people in the New Testament that Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles go to reach were surrounded by idols, surrounded by false religion. It was the default to be polytheistic. And God separates himself from the gods. In fact, go to Exodus 15. This is just after God has parted the Red Sea for his people to cross, to leave Egypt, to go to the promised land. They have come across and they, so they turned around and saw the waters destroy the Egyptian army, cover them, wipe them out, obliterate their enemies. And they sing like they ought to after seeing such a miracle. Moses and the people of Israel, they sing and then Miriam leads the women in a dance later on and they are ecstatic with praise. Verse 11 of Exodus 15 children of Israel said, Who is like you, O Lord? All caps. That's Yahweh in the Hebrew, the covenant name, the personal name of God to His people. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? It's a comparison. Let's put all the gods on stage. Let's compare them. Moses says, Who's like you? None of these guys. Why? Majestic in holiness. Awesome, inglorious deeds, doing wonders. It is a rhetorical question. Moses is not saying, uh, let's go find out, let's, let's do an apologetics trip, let's check out the truth here and see if there is anyone like the Lord. He's saying there is no one like the Lord. Majestic in holiness. See, he's not just holy, he's majestic in holiness. There's this language that tries to find a way to, to talk about God's holiness And so we add adjectives and adverbs to these words and try to lift them up. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? He is not like the other gods. 
This is even shown to us in the life of Jesus. So go to, to Luke chapter 1. Go to Luke chapter 1 in the New Testament. This is the birth of Jesus being foretold to Mary. Notice what happens here in Luke 1, 35. An angel is talking to Mary. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called, what? Holy, the Son of God. Before Jesus came into the world, Mary, his mother, was promised that he would be holy. What was her understanding of that? Well, her understanding of that would have come from the Old Testament conception of God as holy. So, ladies, imagine that message for a minute. Not only is there an angel in your living room, he's telling you you're going to have a baby. Let's let's forget the part that she's a virgin. The baby you're going to have is going to be holy. Now, there's been a lot of babies born here in the last few years. I don't think, we can talk about this later, that any of the parents here are going to rise up and say, my child is holy. Because we've gone, you've gone through diapers. As they get older, they disobey without being taught how. They screech and scream. They do foul things. They put dirty things in their mouths. A child is not holy. <laughs> There's no real sense that your child is holy. And yet Mary is promised that her son would be holy. And that's not to say that Jesus wasn't a baby that learned how to do these things. But to understand that Jesus was going to be holy. He was going to be different, separate, other, pure. So now imagine being Jesus' brothers and sisters. And your older brother, the oldest brother, does not sin. He's pure, he's holy, he's other, he's different. In a sense, he's their half-brother, because Joseph's not his dad. I wonder if the brothers and sisters of Jesus could have told us what it meant to be in the presence of a holy person, because they grew up with a holy one in their house. They understood that he was different, other. He didn't steal cookies, He didn't lie about whether he did something or not. The younger ones couldn't pin anything on their older brother. He was holy. And this is the promise to Mary. When we see Jesus in his ministry approach demons specifically, they recognize him. Because often they say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons know who Jesus is. They recognize his holiness. Now, Jesus, I believe if you had seen him, and I think you can, you can take this from scriptures, you would not have recognized anything necessarily special about him physically. He was fully man. And yet, the demons see his holiness. You see, the people around don't see that. They don't recognize that. But the demons, first glimpse, they are terrified. They plead with him. They ask him not to do things because they know he is the Holy One of God. See, Jesus is not like the other gods. He is holy. 
the disciples began to see this. Go to the book of John. Go to John 6. It began to become apparent to some people who this man was. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I think I say that every time I preach, but this one really is. John chapter 6. Towards the end, this is after he's given the bread of life speech. He's fed thousands and thousands of people from one boy's little lunch. The people leave because of his hard sayings. They walk away. They desert him. And in verse 66, John tells us this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Peter gets it right. Sometimes he did. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples began to recognize his holiness. This guy is different. He is other He is, in a sense, strange. He's unique. He's not like the other gods. In fact, he sounds a whole lot like Yahweh, the personal God of the Jews in the Old Testament. We we know that by reading the New Testament that he is this God of the Old Testament come in the flesh. This is our God. This is our God, Jesus shows us the holiness. By the way, I thought about structuring part of this by saying, God the Father is holy, God the Son is holy, God the Spirit is holy, but I decided not to go that route because I couldn't, again, narrow down verses to talk about God the Father is holy. It seems to be very evident. There are several verses, including the one we just read, that talk about Jesus being holy. And then I figured it was kind of redundant because God the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. For a reason. He is holy. He is set apart. And that is his work to do in us. But we'll get there. Number four. God is holy, holy, holy. We sang that this morning. And this is in two places in scripture that this is how this happens. Thrice repeated phrases do not happen. They are extremely rare. Repetition does happen where you repeat something once. But this this repetition of holy, holy, holy is significant. It is one of the crown jewels of Scripture that so many pastors and scholars and believers down through the centuries have meditated on these passages. So I want to go to the two passages. I've already read one. that talk about God is holy, holy, holy. Go to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. Famous passage. You know it. Don't let that get in the way of knowing it better, knowing it more. God is holy, holy, holy. Watch this scene play out. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Not just one little word, no, two little words of context. That's important 
that first phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died. If you go back into Kings and Chronicles, see King Uzziah was a good king in the southern kingdom. He was a good king. He reigned for 52 years. I read somewhere that if, if you went back 52 years of American presidents, you'd have, I think, somewhere in the range of eight to nine presidents. One man ruling the nation for 52 years. And it's the year that he died. So imagine what it was like to be in his kingdom. The king that you may have not, barely anybody knew his father, perhaps. King Uzziah has died. He is gone. The man who has led their nation to prosperity, to worship of Yahweh, he has died. And then the very next thing that Isaiah sees is a throne. Who sits on a throne? A king. And so God is seen seated on the throne. Second thing, it says the train of his robe filled the temple. Now this is somewhat conjecture, but we have found other temples of pagan religions that are set up very similar to the Jewish temple. So what that means is, is that God probably just used a common way of building a temple to, to contextualize and show the Israelites. They understood that this was a temple. It looked like other temples, but it was different in other regards as well. However, in some of these temples, what we found are in order to try to make the place holy and have a sense of weight to it, the, pa- the pagans would put footprints on the stones in their temple. But they would not be like a size nine and a half footprint. They would be like this big. And they would put this massive foot in the temple as it went up. And just like the Jewish temple that started below and went up to the holy place and then up to the most holy place, many other temples were structured that way as well, there would be these massive feet on the ground. So as you approached the most holy place in these pagan temples, it would be understood that this is a big God. But the way that they had to do it was by representing with a big foot. So part of what might be going on here on Isaiah 6 is that you see his robe fills the temple Some scholars think that means that he didn't fit in the temple. (laughs) That the picture is, that the picture is he's seated on this massive throne that that doesn't really fit in the building and the the train of his robe is so large that it's filling the whole thing. So imagine how big of a robe it would be to fill this room. The point being, he he doesn't just go into the temple and see a a facsimile of a human king that, that is actually God. No, this is a massive spiritual being that somehow he is enabled to see. He sees God, his robe fills the temple, and then he sees around that, above him, verse 2, stood the seraphim. That's just a word in Hebrew that, that means flaming ones, burning ones. This is the only place in Scripture that we see them. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then the important thing to see is what happens when God in all His holiness shows up. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Smoke from sacrifice. Smoke because... God essentially may be using special effects, I mean that in the most, uh, the best way, to emphasize his holiness, that there's, that smoke appears, that the seraphim are calling out, the place is shaking, and look how Isaiah reacts. 
He doesn't take out his iPhone and immediately go to Instagram to record this incredible sight. Watch what Isaiah does. Woe is me! That is essentially calling down a curse upon himself. To say woe is not to say like surfer dude, woe. Woe is to say I am cursed for being here. I should not be here. Woe is me. The ESV says, for I am lost. I love, I think as the King James, the older versions say, I'm undone. The picture is he's, he, his being is like almost coming apart because of this holy God. And then he recognizes, I am a man of unclean lips. He sees his sin in the light of God's holiness. He's immediately aware of it. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then he says one of the most shocking things in scripture. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. This is Yahweh Sabaoth. It means the Lord of the armies of heaven. He sees a military figure. He sees a God who is in control, who commands heaven's armies. Isaiah recognizes the otherness of God, the purity of God, and immediately recognizes his commonality, recognizes his sinful lips. Now, God is gracious enough after this to send, to send an angel to him and touch his lips with a burning coal, symbolizing cleansing. But Isaiah recognizes God's holiness. Now, in Revelation 4, which we read at the very beginning, we see a dazzling display. We actually sang about it as well in Revelation song. A dazzling display that John can, is struggling to find words to describe. He's like, uh, it's kind of like a, like a jewel. It's, it's like a rainbow, but the rainbow's like an emerald. And he, he, he doesn't know exactly how to use human words to describe the throne room that he sees. But one of the things that, that just blows me away is it says, the four living creatures never cease to say. They have a very simple job description. Sing a chorus all the time. All the time. And so the picture is of a God seated on a throne, surrounded by his creatures who shout out slash sing, holy, holy, holy. Can you not wait to sing that song when you get to heaven with the angels? I cannot wait to sing holy, holy, holy with millions and millions of the redeemed and the holy angels someday to God who is holy to be in his presence. Number five, God requires holiness. God requires holiness. I need to see a show of hands. How many of you read the book of Leviticus this week? Anybody? Phil? No, Patricia did. Okay. Was it riveting? You loved it. Kind of boring. Yeah. Man, Leviticus doesn't really get your motor going, does it? And you're looking for some, some kind of encouragement. Leviticus is a book all about holiness. From, from first to end, it's all about holiness. The tabernacle and the priests and the Levites who serve in the tabernacle are described. And the reason it's boring is because God sets forth instructions, rules, regulations that are incredibly precise for his people to follow about how to go about this tabernacle, this holy place. Now, I just realized this last night when I was reading, and I was talking to my wife about this. 
when they built the temple, the Jews built the temple, it was built out of stone, solid material. It was in one place. And so there was no danger of, of really anybody else going into the temple and violating that. But when it's in a tent in the wilderness, I, I thought to myself last night, probably the first time, okay, wait, so there's the holy place, there's the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, the table for the showbread, the, the, the censer for incense, all these things. How did they move that stuff? Because you have all these regulations, don't touch it, don't look at it. And so as I was reading Leviticus, there are certain guys, Levites, they're called the Kohathites, their job was to take care of the holy things. So they would let Aaron and his sons go in, and Aaron and his sons would take down the veil, and they would, they would take down the veil, and without looking, they would cover the ark so that no one else would see it. And then when they did that, they exited, and the Kohathites came in and picked it up. They didn't get to look at it. Now, that's just one instruction of one thing. The book of Leviticus is filled with it. See, the tabernacle is also put in the middle of the people. So whenever they got up and they followed the cloud, and the cloud stopped, the people of Israel would stop in the wilderness, and they'd set up camp. And there'd be three tribes on the north, three tribes on the south, three tribes on the west, three tribes on the east. And what's in the middle? The tabernacle. Who lives in the tabernacle? God. (laughs) He is at the center of his people, Holiness is at the center of his people, in the middle of the camp, separate. There, there, were, there were things built around, a fence around the tabernacle to keep it separate from the people because it was a holy place. When the temple is built, there are regulations of who can go where, when. The Holy of Holies was so incredibly... By the way, you see that Holy of Holies? That's, the, that, that's double. And then we sing to God, holy, 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 that's triple. It's just, there's, there's no better way of, of emphasizing it than just to repeat it. In the holy of holies, there's the, the, the ark. And on it is the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And that's where the presence of God would reside. How many times did the Jews get to go in there every year? Once. How many people got to go in there once a year? One guy. That is a other, unique, separate, different, place and that was what god was doing he was showing his people through a visible physical representation of how his holiness ought to be treated with respect with purity that the priests had to bathe they had to wear special clothing they had to do all these things in order to approach a holy god we see that in all of the preparations for the tabernacle and the temple also in hebrews 12 verse 14 The author of Hebrews says, holiness is required. Go there for a second. Hebrews 12. This is bad news. Hebrews 12. This is bad news on the face of it. The author has just talked about discipline. That God disciplines his sons following up the discipline in Hebrews 12, 12, he says this, Therefore lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. So strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's it. If you do not have holiness, you may not see the Lord. That is bad news. 
that is bad news because we're not holy. And so if we don't possess holiness, we cannot see the Lord. And that's why number six in your notes is so vitally important. Number six, God's holiness on, is on... Oh, there's a typo. God's holiness is on display at the cross. God's holiness is on display, which is an amazing thing because there, it is anything but holy. If we compare the Old Testament and, and the Levitical laws and the tabernacle, because it is not a clean place. We wear crosses. We, we put crosses, a huge cross on the outside of our building. Uh, we, we, I remember like picking out things, designs. Like, that's a cool cross. I mean, like Celtic crosses, right? They're cool. They're different. Okay, that's an execution stay, stake. The cross is a filthy, dirty place. I can't even, I don't even feel comfortable saying what some of the things that the Romans did to people on the cross. It's a filthy, dirty, bloody, disgusting, unholy place. And yet at the cross, we see God's holiness on display. Two places. You don't have to go there. I'm going to read it quickly. Galatians 3, verse 13. Talking about the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Then check this out. For it is written, and he quotes, I believe this is Deuteronomy, yes. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the Old Testament law said, if you're hanged on a tree, that is a horrible thing. That's, that's, that's a curse. And here is the Holy Son of God hanging on a tree. That's, that's a curse. And that's very good news. Because he takes on our curse. How can he do that? Because he's holy. Because he is the Holy One of God. He is the only one who can do that on the cross. And so God's holiness is on display because the Holy One is on the cross. And the Holy One is not only on the cross, but the Holy Son is on the cross bearing the holy wrath of the Holy Father. See, there's holiness everywhere. You just have to see it. It's a shockingly holy place, this cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is such a beautiful verse. It says this, For our sake, for our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Okay, now that, that term does not mean that Jesus did not know sin intellectually. He, it's not like He couldn't recite the Ten Commandments. It's that He didn't know in the Hebrew sense, experience, do, participate in sin. So this sinless one is made sin. Look at that. So in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And I know holiness is not explicitly stated there. But we see in Galatians and 2 Corinthians and, and, and other places, this substitution, this, this in the place of. So the lamb that was brought before the priest to be slaughtered in the Old Testament, it couldn't just be any lamb, could it? It couldn't have been a deformed lamb. It couldn't be a lamb that had some kind of disease. It had to be a pure, holy, spotless lamb. Do you see what God is doing on the cross? The holy, spotless lamb is there. Why? So that we who are unholy, who have spots everywhere, who are cancerous with sin, might become holy. That is the good news. 
That's very good news. In fact, I think that's good enough news to go tell the world about. What good news we have here of God's holiness. God's holiness is terrifying. It is awful in the old sense of the word. And yet, God's holiness is also a beautiful thing if it is applied to your life and to your account. Because someday you'll stand before a holy God, seated on a throne, just like Isaiah saw him. And if you are not holy, you may not approach him. If you are not holy, he will say, depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But the good news is there is a way. Redemption has been bought because the Holy One substituted himself on the cross for the unholy. Now, these last few minutes, implications and response. We've got to see some biblical reactions to holiness because they really just just help us see how we ought to react in light of God's holiness. We already saw with Isaiah how he did it, but my favorite one is Luke 5. Luke 5. And because it's it's got Peter in it, and Peter's just a hoot. And so fun to to read, to look at, to see ourselves in him and his actions. Luke 5. By the way, um, R.C. Sproul said this, When we are aware of the presence of God, we become most aware of ourselves as creatures. It is very easy to elevate ourselves outside of the holiness of God. But when we truly approach God's holiness, we become very aware of our creatureliness. And you see that here in Luke 5. This is the calling of the disciples. Verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. He's a, he's a fisherman. You don't fish during the day. You go early, 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 early in the morning. And sometimes you have good days and sometimes you have bad days. And these guys were not novices. This is what they did for a living. They knew what they were doing. Peter says, But at your word I will let down the nets. Verse 6, So they go, they go out in the boat. There's a huge crowd, apparently, still milling about on the land. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. <laughs> All night, they didn't catch a fish. They were like picking up boots and fish hooks and stuff. They couldn't catch anything. And they go out at Jesus' word, put the nets down, and the, the fish fill the nets. The nets are breaking. Watch this. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Okay, cool miracle. Whoa, look at that. There's a bunch of fish. Hey, dad, take a look. Peter does not react that way. Check out Peter. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What happened? He understood that he was not in the presence of just another man. He sensed, saw, experienced the holiness of God in front of him and fell at his feet and said, get away from me. Like, get away. He's, he was embarrassed. He felt dirty and sinful because he was in the presence of a holy God. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What a fantastic reaction to have, 
to understand who God is. There's other uh, passages there that you can go to. Um, The one in Revelation shows John falling at the feet of Jesus like he was dead. That's a good reaction to holiness as well. Get on the ground. Number two, take God's holiness seriously. Take God's holiness seriously. The passage you have there in Numbers 20 is the story of God telling Moses and Aaron, go speak to that rock. Out of the rock will come water and I'll, I'll give my people water. They're complaining that they have no water. I'll give them water. I'll provide it for them. What does Moses do? He hits the rock. Okay, but the water came out. Cool. The result's all good, right? We're pragmatists. Whatever, whatever works, right? Whatever works did not work for Moses because God immediately says, you don't get to go to the promised land. All I did was hit the rock. I didn't want to speak. I was kind of mad at the people, so I hit the rock, right? And water came out, so God agreed, right? God blessed it. God, in his grace, decided to allow water to come out from the rock, but he tells Moses and Aaron, you don't get to see the promised land. Why? Because you didn't treat me as holy before the people. And then it goes on to say, Moses and Aaron didn't treat God as holy, but God shows himself to be holy to his people. We must be serious about God's holiness. The other example is Nadab and Abihu, one of the only stories in Leviticus. In Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of of Aaron, they've just been consecrated. They're starting this new form of worship to Yahweh. And somehow they disregard, they disobey. We don't know exactly how, but they offer strange fire. And God, boom, zaps them. Lightning, fireball, whatever, some, something to do with fire comes out from the presence of God and just incinerates them. No messing around. When David moves the Ark of the Covenant from the place it's been for decades and wants to take it to Jerusalem, they put it on a cart, mistake number one. Mistake number two, Uzzah thinks that he ought to protect the Ark and put out his hand to keep it from touching the ground. As if he is cleaner than the ground. The ground is God's creature. The man is God's creature, but the man is a sinful creature. He touches the ark, God's angry, and strikes him dead. That's a tough story to, to see, but God's holiness is not something to be trifled with. Now, does God do that all the time? Absolutely not. We're surrounded by the mercy and patience of God that he doesn't do that every day. But there are examples to us to take God's holiness seriously. Five times in the book of Leviticus and twice in the New Testament, the phrase is, be holy for I am holy. Which, if you've ever read that, I hope you feel inadequate. Oh, okay. All right. I'm holy. I'm God. You're my creation. So you ought to be holy like I'm holy. Oh, no problem. Great. That's a hard command. That is a hard command. And yet, holiness is the quality which man is most particularly commanded to possess. What does that mean? It means that we must understand holiness to be a process. Sanctification, holiness, they're the same word. They come from the same root. We ought to pursue holiness without which no one will see God. We ought to be holy as our God is holy. And that means both separated from sin and purified in our lives. So we flee sin, but we don't just flee sin. We flee sin and we pursue holiness. We run away from sin and we go after holiness. Doggedly, 
pursuing, stumbling, getting back up, going together in holiness. Now, we're, we're saints. Okay? Now, saints are not um, canonized, Mother Teresa. That's not the way the Bible uses it. That's the distortion of the Roman Catholic Church. We are all saints if you are a believer in Christ Jesus. That word in English is saints. In Greek, it's holy ones. Hagios, hagios, holy ones. We are holy in the sense that God has called us out. He has positionally made us holy and he is making us holy. And one day we will be holy. So number four, I kind of raced over it, but the pursuit of holiness and fleeing from sin. Two examples there are Paul's talk about staying away from sexual immorality and then the famous story of Joseph fleeing Potiphar's wife. Number five is the promise of holiness. And we don't have time, but there's three great passages there to talk about this very thing. That not only is God making us holy, but one day we will be holy. Standing in the presence of a holy God, he will have made us holy. We won't be able to boast about it. Look how holy I am. We will say, look how holy God is. And he's granted for me to share in his holiness. So that's the promise of holiness. That's the promise of holiness. Some here this morning perhaps do not recognize God's holiness and have not responded in the right way. I would, I would urge you even this morning, even right now, repent of your sins in the sight of a holy God. Put your faith in the fact that his son paid the penalty on the cross after living a perfect life in which he never violated God's holiness. He rose from the dead to defeat Satan's sin and death and promises new life, eternal life, holy life to all those who will repent and believe. That's good news. And that's the good news that we have for children, for old people, for everyone in the middle. That is great, great news. Let's pray to our holy God. Holy Father, we have seen a glimpse of your holiness this morning. We ask that you would show us more. Blind us with your holiness so that we would get on our face before you and then as you come close and pick us up, dust us off, guide us on the narrow way that we would follow you, that we would do this together and God, that you would show yourself to be holy in this church, that we would be a separated people, not in the sense that we stay away from the world but that that we're different, that we have a message to share with them. In Jesus' name, amen.